Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Liz Lenevy, and today I'm joined by everyone, Amy Gunn, Mary Simon, Erica Slater, Elizabeth McNulty, and Megan Crow. Hello, ladies. Hey. So today we're going to be focusing on another one of those hard skills topics, wrongful death distribution hearings, specifically within the context of a contested hearing. So for those of you who may not be familiar with this particular subject, in Missouri, and I would presume probably most jurisdictions, when you have a wrongful death case, there are multiple people who can be considered class one takers, class one beneficiaries, a certain group of people who, even if they don't participate in the wrongful death litigation, have a statutory right to take as part of whatever distribution there may be from a settlement or a verdict. So in Missouri, for example, those class one beneficiaries include the decedent's parents, children, whether biologic or adopted, and then legal spouses. So that's the other thing is that I've learned is that if you have a wrongful death case and sometimes someone will come in and say, I'm this person's spouse, you have to double check if that was a legal marriage or if this is a common law situation because Missouri is not a common law marriage state. But regardless... If you have a case where multiple people can fit within that class of beneficiaries, whenever the distribution for that settlement takes place, you have to make sure that all of those individuals are informed, have the opportunity to participate in the hearing, and basically make their claim to the court as to why they should get a certain percentage or a certain amount of whatever that settlement or verdict may be. So a situation where you have, let's say, a son and a daughter, they both want you to represent them for purposes of pursuing the wrongful death case. That is a situation where you have to have a very important conversation with them. And Amy, what is that conversation you have to have? Very well explained, Liz. We have these classes in the state of Missouri. And as you said, three different types And sometimes you have a spouse that comes to you or a brother and sister. And the first thing, of course, to do is try to figure out how many people are in the class. And it could be someone who's in their 70s who's died. And I will always ask, did that person's parents predecease them? Because you just never know. The worst thing you can do is not understand who the potential class beneficiaries are. So I figure that out. So let's say a parent dies and leaves two adult siblings, like you mentioned, and and sister calls. And I say, do you have any siblings? Yes, my brother. Have you spoken with your brother about this? Oh, no, he's a deadbeat. Okay. And that is not always the case. So I have to say, look, the law is that you both at this point are eligible, so to speak, to to have a distribution if they're, if we're successful here. And it's better for the case if you all are on the same team. I want everybody on the same page because if you're in the litigation and the defense attorney is questioning the client and they find out that there's a, a long lost sibling who hasn't been or isn't represented, it could very well happen that person is approached or deposed, and if they start really talking badly about each other or about their respective relationships with the deceased parent, the value of the case goes down. 
the value of the case goes down. It's a side show and the jury gets distracted and a good defense attorney will understand that that means they're not going to offer as much on the case. So I explained at the outset, you may not get along well with your sibling or with your spouse's parent or whoever it might be, but we have to get on the same team for now. We want the best outcome for the case. Now, at the same time, that fulfills another interest that we have, which is to have everyone as a client. And the reason we want everybody as a client is first and foremost to have to create the best and most successful set of facts for the case. But also at the end, if you do have a beneficiary who you haven't consulted with, who you haven't signed up, who's out there, that person could come in at the last minute and claim part of the settlement or verdict if there is one. And that opens an entirely different can of worms that I think we might get into (laughs) later on. So do you identify some cases aren't always wrongful death cases from the outset, but do you identify all of the family members at the beginning of your cases then? I think that's the best practice. If it turns out maybe you're talking about a failure to diagnose a cancer case or you've got a client who is the client, but then when that person passes, then the wrongful death laws come into place which are different in every state. But again, in Missouri, there's a prescribed number of people or set of people that could be involved. So yeah, I want to know those answers. And then this is adjacent to the actual settlement. But if you have a case where, let's say it involves a child and then one parent is the more involved or the custodial parent of the child, if you're representing them, do you contact the other parent from the outset I'm imagining that can get dicey if one if the parent who's the non-custodial parent or the parent who's not with the child majority of the time if they find out and then they think I don't have you ever had a situation where then the other parent wants to get another all the time attorney so like yeah what do you do then I start out the same way and explain why the best way to go forward is to be on the same page and I say by the way the law says that at the end, you all can decide, let's say there's $10. You all can decide how to split that $10. Or if you disagree on how that $10 is spent, I then am in a situation where I can't truly advocate for either one of you. I can, in the past, I've had that breakdown sometimes, and I say, you, you can tell the judge what you want to tell the judge, I've got the same questions for both of you. You can tell the judge your story and the judge can decide. So if it's truly contentious between the beneficiaries, I will say, is there any chance that we can get along for now? Knowing that at the end, there's a depending on how much there is, maybe we can come to a settlement between yourselves because I'm not going to I'm not going to say mom needs more or dad needs more. I can't do that then. I can explain the law and the circumstances under which a judge will rule and some of the factors that come into play. But for now, do you think we can get along for all the reasons why I've explained? And that usually works unless it's just really awful. And then in that case, I say, we, I only need one person to file the lawsuit. There's only one wrongful death case that's filed. 
everybody. And then I have a fiduciary duty to to bring the lawsuit and to do the best for all the beneficiaries, whether I represent them or not. However, if it's going to be contentious, then, and we don't even have to tell any of the other beneficiaries that the lawsuit is being filed, but you do have a statutory obligation under the law to tell the beneficiaries that they have a right to distribution, and here's when the hearing's going to be, and you may show up and argue why you should you should be given a percentage or a share. So I'm almost always successful in one of those two ways. Number one, like getting everybody on board or at least identifying who it is that my client is does absolutely will not allow me to represent in any capacity. I then would love for them to have a lawyer. Two reasons. The first is just it's easier to deal with a lawyer than a non-represented person. And then that lawyer can also help right. be a part of the case. So I want to know that at the beginning. What doesn't work out is if you don't find out who other beneficiaries are or work hard to figure it out, have that conversation with your client, try to get everybody on board. And then halfway or three quarters or at the end of the case, somebody shows up with a lawyer. And then there's a dispute about how that lawyer's getting paid. Because, and this is not well defined in the law, and we've had this situation come up in the past where people have shown up at the end after you've done all the work to get all of the settlement and they want their piece, which they're allowed to have under the law. But does your fee come off of the total settlement or just the percentage that the judge ends up giving your client? And this is rather unsettled, which is, again, another reason why it's better to have everybody on board so you don't have that complication after the case settles. Megan. I'm curious if wrongful death distributions have gotten more complicated in recent years with the rise of genetics online services like 23andMe and similar services. If someone comes in and says, I'm family and it may be someone that other family members don't know about, what are... What is the extent of the responsibility of the attorney to go out and do independent research of who all the possible beneficiaries are? I would say that you have to do some level. You have some level of due diligence. Absolutely. And that would include talking to your client, maybe talking to other family members and trying to nail it down by that. But if your client doesn't tell you who else, I don't know what sort of responsibility I would have to then try to do some sort of genealogy project to try to find everyone who might possibly be related. I think the genetics question is interesting, and I've run into that issue before of do I need to do some sort of genetic testing? Um, In the particular instance, I'm thinking of we elected not to do that. But what we typically look for in parental cases, for example, who is a child? Who is actually biologically related? Are there any, is there any adoption? You want documents. You want paperwork. And that would the best one is your birth certificate. If someone is on your birth certificate, that's an easy way to establish paternity or some sort of parental child relationship. Obviously, if it's a if it's a husband and a wife or husband and a husband, whoever, then you need some sort of marriage certificate. I do wonder, and maybe this gets a little bit interesting in situations where maybe someone's got like a secret family. That could be an interesting one. I've never run into that. But as far as if I have some sort of ethical duty to try to track down people that I don't even know exist, 
or that may exist, I would say that there is no responsibility on an attorney to go that far. But you do have to you have to exercise some level of diligence in trying to find everyone and trying to sufficiently contact them once you know they exist. For example, I had a case a while back ago where there was an estranged sibling and we had no no way of contacting them. We tried to reach out to them on social media. We tried some emails, some phone numbers we found. Finally, my client was actually able to use some of her own resources to locate an address. And we used that address. We sent a letter and that got a response. So that's an example of we tried different creative ways to locate this person. But I think if it's a situation where you truly have no idea where they're at, that's something where you might be able to do a publication some sort of legal notice in and that feels very old timey because who reads newspapers or publications anymore but that is still an example of you exercising your due diligence in trying to alert any potential class members and that's what the court is going to want to see because ultimately a wrongful death judgment a wrongful death settlement has to be approved by the court and that's nice because at the end, we simply follow the court's order with respect to distribution. And so we present evidence to the court. Let's say there's a sibling that has not been involved at all in either in the life of the decedent or in the lawsuit. We do have an address. We send a letter under the statute that says this case existed, this case settled. There's a hearing on the the approval of the wrongful death settlement and distribution on this date in this courtroom at this address in front of this judge, this is your notice to show up. If, and I send it certified mail or some other evidence that I can present to the judge that I did my statutory duty. I go to the hearing, I have the sibling, I have the returned green card for the certified mail that proves that the person I sent the letter to, received it, I show it to the judge. I've never had judges really require much more than that because, you know, you got to get it done. Now there's money there by once it over. The judge will order that the person received proper notice under the statute that we have done our duties statutorily and the order is entered, judgment is entered, and the distribution is as follows. Then we take that order back to our accountant and she sends the checks where they need to go. So as as I was describing earlier, there can be conflicts among the class members. And I'm aware of a story where there was, I believe, a spouse and an adult daughter who could not, this may be a published case that I read, they could not decide who got what. Typically, there is guidance in the case law that indicates if there's dependency, if the decedent was the breadwinner leaving the spouse, then the fact that the breadwinner was supporting the spouse is going to play heavy into the judge's determination of who gets what. So in the case that I'm describing, there was a spouse who was left behind. The decedent was the breadwinner, her husband, and there was an adult daughter who I think was daddy was also supporting. Not entirely, but daddy was also supporting, like maybe paying for her apartment or things like that. And adult daughter believed that she needed more than 
a few percentages and her mother, the widow, believed otherwise. And the court heard the argument and decided. I can't remember. I think the percentages were maybe 80-20 because of that dependency issue. And, and so that's a lot of what comes down to it. And so in our position, I think it's just incumbent upon us, again, to educate the clients and say, dependency is an issue. I don't know how it's going to go here, especially when I'm just signing everybody up. I don't know what it looks like between two adult children, neither of which were being supported by their deceased parent. And then the, after you get through the pecuniary loss, the dependency, then it has to default to that emotional loss. And I think judges try to be pretty fair and you tell your story. And if you all were pretty even in your relationship with your parent, that's probably screaming 50-50 to me. If it's a situation where one sibling left home 25 years ago and never called, and this is a key. What's the key, Liz? Did you attend the funeral? Yes. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yes. This is, I have seen this over and over again where it's just one of those facts that that I've seen judges hung up on it. I've seen juries hung up on it. It's like a just can't get over. Just can't get over it. You don't show up to the funeral and you've got your hand out now. And you Somehow, show up Yeah, you took a day off work to come down for this hearing, but you couldn't make it to the... That is a critical... I asked that That's question. Really interesting. I've learned to ask that question in a subtle, non-judgy like sure. way. So... Did you go to the funeral? Because I've learned that that is a key fact that really, it really compels people. Another way to get around it that that I have done where I don't want to get into direct conflict with another class one beneficiary is I won't even ask them anything. I'll ask my client, you went to the funeral, right? Who did you see there? Yes. And then I just let my client testify. Oh, I saw brother A and sister B, but brother D was missing. Is there ever a circumstance where the represented takers who are in conflict about the proceeds would ever attend like a mediation of sorts to... Does that happen? Yes. And so I'm glad you brought that up because if you go through... Pre-court approval. Yes, absolutely. Because the court will do whatever. If you walk in and say, we are all the beneficiaries on an agreement to this percentage, the judge, I've never seen a judge argue about it or want to spend any more time on it. They just sign. Yeah. And so what I say is, okay, there's three of you. Let's say there's a parent and two adult siblings. Uh, And again, I want all of them as my client right now for the betterment of the case. And let's say there's $100 to distribute net. And I say, okay. Now the rubber meets the road, y'all. We talked about this three years ago or two years ago, and here we all are, and I get them all together, and I say, here's what. I can ask you all exactly the same questions in front of the judge. You all can let the judge decide. We can sit right here right now and come to terms. I can leave the room, and you all can just come to terms with it, or we can ask for a mediator's help who is a very going to listen to all the facts, just like a judge would, and make a recommendation. It doesn't have to be binding, but it, just like any other mediation, it could be very helpful to educate the client about how it might go for a judge. Most of the time, when you sit down and say, and this isn't unlike really our, the rest of our practice, when you sit down and say, There's, here's the money, you all can solve it right now together, or you can let 
a completely unknown person who knows nothing about this case really make that decision for you. It's almost like saying, here's the money on the table. Would you like to take it or would like a jury of strangers to decide? Right. And so I, more times than not, when this has come up, I leave the room, I come back, they've had, they have a deal. And this, again, this gets weird. We've got fiduciary duties and ethical obligations and conflicts of interest and all that stuff. But I'm very upfront about it. Right. And I tell them from the very beginning what the obligations are. If I really felt like somebody in that group was getting a raw deal, I guess I'd have to think about whether suggesting mediation. But I've never had that happen. And it usually get, works itself out. People can usually come to terms when they're really forced to do If there's a handful of takers and then... Everyone but one person's represented and that person shows up with notice and wants advocacy. Would the judge postpone to do that or would the judge be like, I'm not? Oh, I think if the client, if the, let's say the estranged sibling. Yeah, let's say there's three and two have lawyers and number three shows up with no lawyer and just says, I'm here to also. I believe in that situation that a judge would say. Uh, here's what's happening today. Would you like time to get a lawyer? When did you get notice of this? Oh, three days, probably seven days ago, because that's the requirement. Seven days ago. Would you like time to hire an attorney? I think if that person said yes, yeah, the judge would certainly reschedule. And I think that would be act- the right thing to do. Actually, I can give an example. Yeah. Because there was a pretty recent Missouri Supreme Court decision on this issue of what is an appropriate distribution amount. And in this particular case, it was an adult child who died, had was unmarried, no children, so it was just the parents. And as the facts came out, the father, who was the plaintiff in the case, had primary custody and the mother had been estranged for several years. And this particular case, just so I can reference it correctly, is Mackey versus Patton. It came down in 2019. And in this case, actually, the mother reached out to the court. She had gotten notice of the hearing for the wrongful death distribution on October 26, 2017. And the actual hearing date was November 21st, 2017. And this is from the actual opinion, the facts section. It says, mere hours before the first scheduled hearing began, Eden, the mother, telephoned the circuit court requesting a continuance because she was not in Missouri, she was an Alabama resident, and did not have an attorney. The circuit court granted a one-week continuance and reset the hearing for November 28, 2017. At the beginning of the hearing, Eden's attorney orally requested a second continuance, asserting the need for discovery and additional time to prepare for the hearing. The circuit court overruled that motion, stating, Off the record, I denied the request for the continuance, and I'm going to stick with the ruling, finding that Miss Eden had notice and we were kind enough to put it off for one week last week. And I think eventually we just need to go forward with this. And I think that needs to happen today, partially due to the issue of the other parties also having to travel into town. So it's probably a case by case basis. It depends on a lot of situations. But, yeah, I think if someone showed up and said, hey, Kent wasn't a part of this. I need an attorney. The court would typically grant grant that continuance. But at some point, you're going to have to get it together. Yeah. And you can also imagine, even based on that, it's something that people can appeal, right? So it's an issue that can go up on appeal. This case was appealed because the circuit court awarded the estranged mom 2%. Oh. And so it went up on appeal. It was reversed by our Court of Appeals for the Eastern District. And then it was transferred over to the Missouri Supreme Court, who affirmed the 
circuit court. Wow. Was the issue on appeal, though, the fairness of the distribution? Correct. Not the notice. Correct. The specific issues on appeal were two points, both by mom. The first argued that the circuit court erred in overruling her motion for a second continuance. So one of them was the timing. The second argues that the circuit court's apportionment of only 2% of settlement funds to Eden erroneously applied the law and was against the weight of the evidence, which that then gets into, I think, what the specific statute says regarding the factors that the court looks into when making these distribution decisions. So I will say, because I've been on the other end of things, where I had a client who there was a specific strategic decision to not get involved, and that's because there was a child who had an estranged relationship with the parent completely outside the fault of the child. This was not the child's fault. They had made multiple efforts to try to regain that relationship. And I think that's a very opposite thing than if a parent makes the decision to have an estranged relationship. The court will look at that and say, okay, you had a child. What efforts have you made to stay in that child's life, to be active in that child's life, to have a relationship, as opposed to you were a child and because of factors completely outside of your control, you didn't get to have that relationship with your parent and then you learned that they died. And now that opportunity to have any type of relationship has been robbed of you. I think that the court will look at that differently. Obviously, who was the decedent and what efforts did the living class member try to make to rekindle that relationship or re-spark that relationship? And I think in, in the particular case that I had, I brought up the statute. And in Missouri, it's 537-090, damages to be determined by the jury, factors to be considered. And so when you're presenting this to a jury, if it had gone to a jury trial, and you want to tell them this is how you have to determine what the value of this person's life was to their family members, what are the things that we look at? We have regard for the pecuniary losses suffered by reason of death, funeral expenses, and reasonable value of services, consortium, companionship, comfort, instruction, guidance, counsel, training, and support, of which those on whose behalf suit may be brought have been deprived by reason of such death and without limiting such damages to those which would be sustained prior to attaining the age of majority by the deceased or by the person suffering any such loss. And in my particular case, I just hung my hat on the word deprived. I said, look, my client was deprived when they were a child because of forces outside of their control. They were deprived of a relationship when they were a young adult because of forces outside of their control. And now they try to make another relationship as they age, but because of the defendant's negligence taking this person's life, they have now had the ultimate deprivation. There is never going to be a chance that this person is going to be able to establish a relationship with the decedent. And you may think if someone comes in at the last minute and they haven't had a very significant relationship with that will stick with the parent decedent, you may think it's going to be okay because they're estranged. I don't think that's the end of the discussion because especially if you're a young adult, having been a young adult and now a not young adult, <laughs> I think about my relationship with my parents and being deprived of the future relationship, in my opinion, can be very valuable, especially at, if the estrangement is on the kid's part, the child's part, like you turn 18, you got to get out of here. I think the trend is typically, unless the parent's the one driving the kid away, the more mature and older you get, the more you think of 
put yourself in your parents' shoes. Right. And you understand better and you want to reach out. And let's say you're 25, 30 years old and you're finding yourself and um, that's when you lose your parent. And even though you've been estranged for 10 years, I think there is incredible value in the loss of that future relationship. And so don't rely on this notion that it's all in the past, that I represent the child that was there every day. Because as a judge, I would understand being moved by this notion that they've been, and Liz, I love your advocacy around the word deprived, deprived of that future relationship is also something to make sure the judge understands as well. Okay, confirm something for me. I haven't had this happen, but I can picture a scenario where you have an adult person who who passes away a wrongful death, who not married, no children, has a very close relationship with one or more siblings to the extent like maybe they're lifelong single, maybe they are roommates, the siblings, but there's one parent alive the law would be such that that and let's make that parent estranged and they haven't talked to the parents for 30 years or whatever it is. The law in Missouri would say that parent is the only one who can receive proceeds regardless of the facts and relationship between those siblings. Correct. If there is a class one beneficiary, which is, as Liz mentioned earlier, parents, spouses and children, if one single person in class one exists, class two, which would be siblings, do not take, are not eligible to receive. Wow. Now, I don't know. I mean, could it be argued that the class one beneficiary should be excluded entirely? Yeah, I wonder if there's any wiggle room. I I believe there, I would assume that person could waive. Yeah. I have had situations where a spouse has died and that person's parents are still alive, but the widow is there and there are minor children. I have had situations where the parents, now they're all class one, but the parents of the decedent sign a waiver. Sure. Like, no, nope, I don't want any money. But could that class one beneficiary waive to the extent that you would go to class two? I would think yes. Voluntarily. Correct. But contentiously. Probably not. Interesting question. I do not know the answer. Yeah, because, and it would be important because even if, say, the class one beneficiary is, oh, don't worry, when I get the money, I'll cut you in or I'll distribute something to you, estranged children. Mm -hmm. One, you have no court order that says that. And two, it doesn't come to you as a personal injury wrongful death settlement. And that has tax implications with gift, especially if it's a large sum of money with any sort of gift tax and things like that. Or who knows what probate or estate matters are involved there. And other states, including Illinois, have a different procedural scheme. And unlike Missouri, which the wrongful death statute lays out the class beneficiaries, in Illinois, the estate is the plaintiff. And the money goes to the estate to be distributed pursuant to probate law, which is broadly the heirs or the next of kin. And so in Illinois, it doesn't go upstream. So in Illinois, parents cannot receive. It's only downstream. So depending on what state you're in, right across the river, a parent may or may not be eligible for any kind of distribution. 
So you got to be real careful to know what your state rules are with respect to how to pursue a wrongful death case and who the takers are and who the potential beneficiaries are. Now, if you have a client, multiple clients who are beneficiaries in the same wrongful death suit from the outset, and you're telling them, you know, how this will play out at the end of the case, potentially, if there's a settlement and there's a court approval, do you tell them that information and then they decide if they want to get separate attorneys, do they electively go and do that? Because I'd, all, I'd also imagine that's difficult if they're both sitting there and they both want you as their attorney and you explain this and then they... Yeah, it's possible. Most of the time at the outset, people will agree to get along and for the betterment of the case, and plus there's no money to fight over yet, so it's a little bit easier right. oh, to, that makes sense. to believe that it's not it's easier almost to yeah. sign up with a person that's in front of you versus finding new counsel. But certainly at the end, if they're fighting and it really the waivers are falling by the wayside, I will say, and I'm not sure I've had this situation, but I would say, look, I this is too complicated. I don't want anybody to feel like I'm not doing the best job I can do for either one of you. So I'm out. I think that our ethical rules would require us to be out and let two new lawyers come in just to argue what percentage should go to what. And then that's complicated because how those people are going to get paid. Again, it's just so much simpler and can be done perfectly ethically and perfectly well, As I think, as long as you're open and communicative with what the rules are, so to speak, and the potential outcomes. I think it's important, too, that if you have a potential conflict of interest that you note at the beginning, it's not just to have the conversation with the client, but to include it into the contract language. Correct. That in the event we reach some sort of settlement or verdict, there is something to be distributed. I cannot ethically advocate for one over the other. And you both know that. We have had this conversation. You are in agreement that I will continue to represent both of you. And when it comes time to distribute funds, you're not going to have an expectation that I'm going to dump on the other person in court and that I'm going to advocate for you. That's not how this works. So you and you get it in writing. And I think that's important, too, that in the event there is some conflict towards the end where once there's a hard dollar figure that people are fighting over, you can pull that contract out and say, hey, you remember when we had this conversation? Remember when we talked about this three years ago? So that's what I've been doing as well as if I know that there's a potential for a conflict that gets written into the contract. Well, and from this discussion, I think it's become very clear that this is something that you need to be thinking about from as soon as the case walks in the door. And I can think of scenarios where the situation between who could possibly recover from this becomes so messy and so convoluted that it hurts the value of the case so much that we don't want to get involved. I could think of a certain case where an adult single man died and had a what could have been his child but for citizenship reasons wasn't on the birth certificate and it became a situation where he didn't have anyone to give the money to go to because there was no parent sibling or child so it's something that we couldn't get involved with anyway so I think that this these issues become a lot messier than they look from the beginning and you think oh this is a great case and then you think there's nowhere for the money to go. There's no one even bring the suit, which is pretty upsetting for extended family to hear about. I've had that 
problem now and I realize it happens much more often than I realize where I'll get a call from someone who says my my dad died or my mom died and I start running through the conversation and then I ask about siblings and that's when they let me know that they're not actually related to the person but they've always the decedent has always been in their life and they've always treated them like that was their real father and I say okay now we're gonna have to have a really awkward conversation where I explain to you that you actually have no legal right unless you can tell me that this person legally adopted you and you have paperwork to prove that in a court of law your relationship means nothing I'm really sorry for that we can try to find ways to see if there is that paperwork. You tell me if it exists. But that's something that I've had to explain to people. It's not enough for you to feel like this person is your parent. There needs to actually be a legal relationship that a court of law will objectively recognize. And with that, I think that's a good place to wrap up today. Thank you, ladies, for another interesting conversation on a pretty heavy topic and thank you all for joining us for another episode of heels in the courtroom remember new episodes drop every wednesday and if you want to reach out to us with your comments or your questions you can contact us at comments at heels in the courtroom.law thanks bye heels in the courtroom is brought to you by the simon law firm At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast... Feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.